It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here once again in the front row. With us, as always, behind the scenes, it's J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. It's episode number 27. We're talking baseball. We're doing that with a Hall of Famer. Jim Cott is our guest today. Four decades playing Major League Baseball. Overall, eight decades around the game. He's got a new book coming out talking about that. But going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame later on this summer at 83 years old. Still going strong with his broadcast as well on Major League Baseball Network. We get into all of that. Episode 27 with the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Here, well, Jim, first of all, can't thank you enough for joining us here. It's it's great to be in the presence of a Hall of Famer, which you'll be going in and being inducted this this summer. We'll, we're going to dive into that and talk about that. But uh, you're also on your book tour. You know, book tours these days are done with Zoom and 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 interviews such as this. So uh, uh, again, thanks for spending a little time with us here today. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's uh... It's been exciting to talk about the uh, the book. It's brought back a lot of memories from uh, from years gone by. <laughs> yeah, Good as Gold is the, the name of the book, My Eight Decades in Baseball, which that in itself says a lot. And we're going to get into it here. And I, I want to start for you at the very beginning. You grow up in Zeeland, Michigan in 1938. It was a, a small Dutch community. What was it like for you in that setting and with sports around at that time in the, the late 1930s? Well, uh, I would say I, I've often said I wish that every kid in America could have grown up in Zeeland, Michigan. You know, a farm community, a uh, town of about 4,000 people, very close-knit, and, uh, you know, good high school teams, got great parents and uh, great support from the community. So, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed my upbringing there. Yeah, western part of the state. Uh, and your dad, who was a shopkeeper, but he was big into baseball. Was he your, your big influence and, and helped you maybe fall in love with the game as much as he did? No question. Uh, I like to say I fell in love with baseball on June 26, 1946. My dad took me to Detroit to see a doubleheader between the Red Sox and the Tigers. Uh, saw Ted Williams, Bobby Doerr, Hank Greenberg, Hal Newhauser, all future Hall of Famers. Uh, but when I walked up the ramp in Briggs Stadium and looked out on that field of green and the whitest white uniforms the Tigers had I'd ever seen, I just said, man, I, I, I think I'd like to be one of those guys out there. Yeah, it's easy to fall in love with this sport when, when you see those kind of pictures out there. So, and, you know, you were a little smaller growing up. Did it take you a while to develop as a player and to develop into what you eventually became? Uh, yeah, it really did. Um I was kind of the littlest athlete in my class. So uh, my boyhood idol was Bobby Shantz, who was uh, 5'6", 135, won the MVP in the American League in 1952. He's a little left-hand pitcher. So as a young boy, I'd always say, uh, you know, when my relatives said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, well, I'm going to be a baseball player. And they always said, that's too bad. Little Jim, he's just so small. So I graduated at uh, high school at 5'10". Um, and then I went into college at about 6'3". So I, I grew late, uh, which kind of was an advantage. I mean, I I never suffered from overuse as uh, some of the young pitchers do today. And, uh, uh, you know, so my size from that standpoint, of course, nowadays you wouldn't, uh, that's unheard of. But I was at 5'10", a uh, pretty good basketball player. You know, I could dribble and pass and play defense, but you, you have to be about 6'8 to do that now. <laughs> And, you know, you go to Zeeland High School, and at the time, what was it like to, to you know, make that transition, find your way, and, and find your way onto that team? Well, in Zeeland, uh, as I said, I was the littlest athlete in my class. I remember as a freshman on the baseball team, because we didn't have a JV team, we just had enough for a, a varsity team, and the sweatshirt that came down over my hand, they had to cut the sweatshirt in half and it still hit me in my left wrist. So uh, uh, I didn't have any trouble making the team because despite my my size, uh, I, I always seemed to, you know, to pitch winning games with all the little stuff that I was doing with the baseball. 
despite that, again, you were winning games, you were excelling, but no offers coming out of high school, right? For, for college, you end up going to a, a more local university. Disappointment at that time that, that you didn't get any other offers? What was your mindset at that time? No, not at all. I mean, I, I there was two schools, Western Michigan, which is now a university, and then it was Western Michigan College. Uh, Jim Bouton went there, the former Yankee pitcher. Uh, they were a good baseball school. And then uh, the local school four miles from my hometown was Hope College. It's a D3 school. And they didn't give scholarships or anything. So uh, I got a job in the summer. I decided uh, they got me a job and I decided to go to Hope College because I knew I was going to pitch there. We had a, we only played about, you know, 15 games in the cold weather, but uh and a lot of them were double headers. So I knew I was going to get a chance to pitch it at Western. Uh, I may have not been that high on the depth chart. So that motivated, motivated me to go to uh, Hope College. And then uh, by doing so, that's how I got scouted and eventually signed. What, what were some uh, of those odd jobs you were doing to, to pay for your tuition? Well, the, the, the job I had as uh, an upcoming freshman in uh, college was in a local laundry. They were a Hope College alumni and Actually, I think that's where I began to grow because I was lifting these big, heavy gray canvas bags full of uh, soil linens from local motels. You know, it was a kind of a resort area. Uh, before that, uh, you know, my dad, when I think I was 12, he said, well, it's time to walk down to see if you can find a job. So I was sweeping floors in a hardware store, washing dishes in a restaurant, stocking shelves in a grocery store. Uh, you know, in those days when... About the time you turned 12 or 13, uh, your parents wanted you to go, you know, find a job. So that's what I did. But that's how, that uh, that job before my freshman year in college, I think, was uh, was very helpful to me and kind of kind of growing into my frame. Yeah, I would think, you know, nowadays, maybe kids aren't doing that. They get on the team. They don't want that odd job. Did, did that kind of give you a sense of, OK, I'm going to work? whatever I'm doing, whether it's baseball or not, did that give you a different sense? Is that something that, again, that you learned from your dad, uh, a shopkeeper back in Michigan? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that was just one of the things that kids my age in that era did because nobody, you know, none of my family went to college. So as my dad said, you know, well, you're going to have to learn to work. You've got to get a job because you're going to have to learn to work for a living. He, he had no idea that I had, well, he did have some designs on the fact that he knew I liked to play baseball, but I don't think he ever thought I'd do that for, for a living. But yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it helps you have a sense of responsibility. I mean, I know, I know nowadays kids have, uh, you know, video games and, and uh, they don't do a lot of the little odd jobs. Our workforce is kind of depleted because of that. But uh, that was, that was kind of uh, something that kids in my era had to do in the summer, go out and get a job. Well, it certainly worked out. Uh, you went there and then you signed a free agent contract. 1957 was the year with the Washington Senators. How did that all shake out? Because I'm sure it's a lot different back then than maybe it is now to, to get that free agent contract. Yeah, it was uh, that was pre-draft. And uh, so you could really sign with anybody you wanted to. So uh, Dick Winsick, the Washington Senators area scout. He came to watch me pitch against, actually he was coming to watch the fellow I was pitching against. And uh, I had a good game and he said, wow, I better go back and see this kid again. So next week I pitched against Alma College. I had another good game. So uh, he offered me a tryout and subsequently signed with him. But uh, there's an interesting story behind that. Uh, because my dad was such an avid fan and he followed the history of a lot of what in those days we call bonus babies. If you got a contract for more than $4,000, uh, you had to take up a spot on the 25-man roster in the big leagues. And obvious at 18, I'm, very few are ready to, to do that. Sandy Koufax overcame that. So did my teammate Harmon Killebrew. They became Hall of Famers. But my dad followed that. So before I signed with Washington, uh, Pete Molito, the White Sox scout, called and said, I understand you're son is going to sign he said uh, i think i can get him twenty-five thousand from the white Sox because i think he'll be in the big leagues in two years well my dad made 72 dollars a week in 1957 and he said to pete thank you but jim's going to take the four thousand go to superior nebraska 
learn how to play the game at the lowest level, learn how to play the game right. So, you know, as I grew a little older, I realized the sacrifice that he made to have me start at the right level. And it paid off because I, uh, I got called up in two years. I still had to go back to the minors for a brief period of time. But without that uh, couple years experience in the minor leagues, I, I never would have uh, really developed into a good big league pitcher. Where did that vision come from your dad? I mean, again, a, a fan of the game, but it seems like he knew the business of the game as well and, and the bigger picture when it came to you and your career. Well, you know, the sporting news in those days, it was called the baseball Bible. You know, it just covered baseball. When they started covering other sports, my dad canceled his subscription. <laughs> so it took all week to read it. It would get to our house on a Monday, and it was there were so many minor leagues all over the country and stories and so he had followed the stories and a lot of a lot of these guys are were friends of mine that got you know twenty five thirty thousand dollar bonuses which in 1957 was huge and then they sat on the bench in the big leagues they didn't get a chance to play very often and their careers never developed they just flamed out so that's where he that's where he got the information to make that decision well, he was an informed reader to say the least. And uh, so 57, 58, you're in minor league baseball. You get the call up in 59. Take us through that. What's it like when you are told, okay, you're getting a call up and you're going to have your debut major league baseball with the Senators? Well, you know, it, it probably wasn't as exciting as, as it could have been or should have been, but what happened early in 59 and, you know, teams didn't keep day-to-day accounts of their minor league players where now managers have to send in computerized reports. So I had set the uh, Southern Association strikeout record. I struck out 19 and then I struck out the first four of my next start. And then I felt something in my shoulder. Uh, so they just said, well, take 10 days off. You know, <laughs> that's about all you did that you didn't have MRIs or x-rays. So I waited, but when I came back, my, my arm angle was a little lower. I didn't have the same pop on the ball. And then our manager called me in one day and said, kid, you're going to the big leagues. And I said, well, do they know that I'm not the same pitcher they saw in spring training? You go up there and tell them about it. So, so I report to Chicago, uh, schedule a pitch on that Sunday, which I do. I didn't do very well. And all of a sudden they're saying, what happened to you? And so, uh, I went back to Washington DC and they actually, uh, took a like a small fat, a fatty cyst out of between my ribs that was permitting from from really having a free and easy motion so uh my my debut was first not very successful but it wasn't as exciting as if you're coming off a hot streak in the minor leagues and you can't wait to get there but it was against the White Sox so a team that you almost signed with and it was a one, two, three inning, right? I was looking at the, this morning, I think a one, two, three inning first inning. Unfortunately, you got roughed up a little bit after that. So two and two thirds. Is that your big takeaway? You look at the, the negative of that start more than the, the positive of it? No, I, you know, I, I know I didn't pitch well, but I also knew that I wasn't a hundred percent. You know, I was, I was thrilled to be there obviously because uh, Chicago was not too far from where I grew up and uh, the White Sox won the pennant that year. And, first hitter I faced with Louis Aparicio became a hall of famer. So, you know, you're kind of awestruck, I think in, in those days compared to young athletes in all sports today uh, with all the exposure on television and, and just the training, they're so much more mature and they, they just get in and feel comfortable right away. Where I think uh, my early years, you know, like say the first time I faced Mickey Mantle, uh, you're in a little bit of an awe uh, instead of feeling comfortable. So, uh, it, it wasn't discouraging uh, to me that first I was disappointing, but I knew I really had better days ahead. And those days certainly came 1961, become a permanent member of that pitching staff. You guys make the move to, to Minnesota as well. Did you feel at that point that you had arrived and, and uh, again, you had a little maybe comfort knowing that you were part of that staff? Well, I don't think that first year I did until uh, probably two thirds of the way through. Uh, I was nine and 17 that year, but we did not have a, a very good team. We began to gather some young players and became better. But uh, uh, it was about halfway through that year. I pitched a complete game and, and then I pitched a shutout. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm starting to feel 
a little comfortable like I belong, but I don't think that really happened until uh, the following year, 1962. I did feel in 61 that by the end of the year, if I, if I didn't have a, a terrible spring training in 62, that I, I certainly belonged and I would get a starting spot, which I did. Yeah, a starting role there. And, and it was a time when pitchers hit, right? Uh, back in the American League Baseball. And uh, a couple times you had not only a complete game on the mound, but a home run during the game as well. That's got to be uh, an, an amazing feat for somebody that certainly you're not going to see that anymore with both teams doing the designated hitter now. Yeah, the only time you'd see it now is with Shoei Otani. And I said, boy, I wish I could have done that because, you know, we always took pride in being baseball players that just happened to be a pitcher. So I always took pride in, you know, being able to bunt, handle the bat, run the bases, slide into bases, all those things that everyday players do. And uh, so today I can understand why they want the DH because uh, the hitter, the pitchers today, they probably didn't even bat in uh, high school or maybe even little league ball. So they're, they're just not prepared. They can't run the bases. It, it kind of disappoints me because they're, they're making us pitchers look like we're non-athletes, you know, and, uh, and in my era, we took pride in being just the opposite. Well, and, and pride, I'm sure, of, of going the distance as well. Did you guys even keep pitch counts at that time? No, we just counted outs, you know, and if, uh, if we got 27 of them and we led by one run, we won the game. But uh, no, pitch counts came later. I just, you know, we were trained so differently than the pitchers today. Uh, you know, when it was day, your day to start, you felt like, you know, well, you're going to go the distance. That was, that was what you wanted to do, and you hoped you did it most of the time. Uh, the game is becoming so specialized now that, uh, uh, you know, that part of it is disappointing. I think the pitchers today, like, say, Clayton Kershaw and, and Max Scherzer, uh, they could go nine innings if they were trained to do it. And it would be uh, so enjoyable for viewers and baseball fans to see those guys hooking up in the in the ninth inning like years ago we'd see sandy koufax and bob gibson and you just don't see that anymore i see where walker bueller for the dodgers pitched a complete game the other day it's the first complete game in the whole season for for all the teams so uh yeah we, we you took pride in and in, in going the distance particularly one of the differences now if you have a big lead they take the starter out of the game if we had a big lead the job was to try to figure out a way to pitch those last three innings and save the bullpen. So it was just a whole different training and a different way they operated the game. Yeah, definitely a, a different mindset than, than what it is right now. As you said, Walker Bueller, uh, the first and, you know, a couple of weeks into the season and only one complete game. Uh, take us through 1965 for you. You guys won the AL pennant that year with the Twins. You went to the World Series. What was so special? What made that team a, a special team in 1965? Well, you know, we were – we were not even a threat. We had a pretty good year in 62, but you just assumed every year that the Yankees were going to win and everybody else played for second. They'd won five in a row. Well, you know, when we moved to Washington, uh, to the Twin Cities, the logo on our cap said TC. And so people that weren't familiar with that around the league, around the dugouts would holler out once in a while, hey, what's that TC stand for? And I always said 20 Cubans. Because we had a scout, Papa Joe Cambria, who scouted all this Cuban talent. And all of a sudden, we got Zoilo Versailles, uh, who was the MVP, Tony Oliva, my, my roommate in the minor leagues. And then he and I were the only two really to make it to the big leagues from Missoula. Sandy Valdespino was our left fielder. So we acquired, you know, a lot of talent in those early 60s that we didn't have in, uh, in Washington. And they always said with the Twins, if they... If they get some pitching, they could be dangerous. Well, we made a trade to get Mudcat Grant in uh, 64. Uh, and then I was maturing into a better pitcher. And so we, we kind of had the pitching now to go with our, with our power. And uh, I think about a third of the way through the season, uh, my roommate, uh, uh, Johnny Klipstein, said, uh, I think we're going to win this thing. So, uh, so I said, really? You know, we're just accustomed to the – to the uh, Yankees winning, but I think we got that feeling then that uh, uh, we could win the pennant, and we did. 
and you won the penny, you played the Dodgers in the World Series. And, and for you individually, you kept going up against Sandy Kopex, right? Three times in that World Series, it was you against Kopex? Yeah, that was it was a, it was a thrill, but it was a tough task because, you know, in those days, uh, they uh, the only game on television was the Saturday afternoon games where we saw Pee Wee Reese and Dizzy Dean doing the TV. So we were all playing for that one game on TV. So I never met Sandy. I never saw him in person until uh, I actually pitched against him in game two. And uh, when we were warming up in the bullpen, uh, it was a cold, kind of a little mist coming down. And I remember he, uh, he looked over at where you were about 20, 30 feet apart when we, when we warmed up. And he said, boy, you guys don't play in this weather, do you? And I thought, that might be the best chance we have. We were, we were used to playing in the cold weather in Minnesota. But uh, when the game started and he and I each went through the batting order the first time I sat next to our pitching coach, Johnny saying, I said, John, if I give up a run, this game's over. I said, there, there's not a man alive can hit this guy. And we did. We got one earned run off him. We scored two. They took him out for a pinch hitter. And then we, uh, we won that game five to one, but that's the last run we got off him. So, and Sandy and I have, have become friends. So uh, that was quite an awesome experience. Uh, there's kind of a funny story behind him pitching game two and, Sit a game one because fans would say, well, why wouldn't Koufax pitch game one? He's the best pitcher on his staff, best pitcher in the league. Well, because it was a Jewish holiday, uh, Sandy didn't pitch game one. Drysdale did. So we knocked Drysdale out in about the fourth inning. And when Walter Alston, the manager, uh, went out to take the ball from Drysdale, <laughs> Drysdale looked at him and said, I bet you wish I was Jewish, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sandy Koufax was famous for that, didn't start, as you said, on, on Sunday. But a great competitor, when, when you know you're going up against a guy like that, does it make you better? Does it make you have to be better? Well, it, it, it puts a little more pressure on you to, you know, under normal conditions, you could maybe give up a run early and you still feel like you're going to have a, a chance to win. But Against him, it was pretty apparent, and that's what happened in game seven. I gave up two runs on three consecutive pitches that probably took a total of two minutes. Uh, Lou Johnson hooked one off the foul pole. Uh, Ron Fairley hit a double. Wes Parker uh, dinked a little single into short right, and that was it. Two to nothing, and that's where it stood. We couldn't touch him. He, uh, his elbow was bothering him, and he, he couldn't throw a curveball after the fifth inning, so he just blew us away with fastballs the last five innings. Well, it didn't work out for the Twins there in 1965. We go ahead in 1966. And again, a lot of the stories I'm sure you could find in your book, Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. Uh, but 1966, individually for you, maybe your, your best season, right? Uh, 25 wins, you, you led the AL, and uh, you know a chance of the Cy Young, unfortunately for you, it's Sandy Koufax, because there was only one Cy Young winner at that time. It wasn't in both leagues. But take us through 1966, and for you, you talked about you matured as a player. How did that help you get to 66 and have such an amazing season? Well, you know, it's kind of strange. We had a saying in my early years uh, that went around baseball. You never really learn how to pitch till you have an arm injury. And in those days, you didn't have surgery. Uh, you didn't want to give up your start because if you did, you might never get it back. So if you had a little shoulder issue, you learned how to release the ball different. If you had a little elbow issue, you did the same. So, uh, in 65, uh, I had a little uh, shoulder problem, and I was kind of long-arming the ball. I, I mean, I had a decent year, but uh, in 66, it, it, it really uh, – I had to pitch kind of with a short-arm action, more wrist action. And I found out all of a sudden I had more movement on the ball. So that's what made – and anytime you see a pitcher have an exceptional year like that, there's a lot of things that go right. You know, you give up five, your team scores six or seven. And and that's what happened that year. I, I honestly think in 1971, when I was 13 and 14, I pitched almost as well as I did in 1966. But, uh, you know, I got on a nice roll, consistent. And uh, I think once you start winning games, the team behind you, they kind of expect we're going to win today. And so that positive energy you get uh, just made everything fall into place that year. 
Well, again, 25 wins, 19 complete games as well. But, but you mentioned, you know, the wins and losses. Do you think that's an overrated stat? Because as you just said, 13 and 14 record, but you thought you were actually a better pitcher in 71. Yeah, see, nowadays they, they have all the metrics, like Felix Hernandez several years ago won the Cy Young. I think he won 10 or 11 games, and Jacob deGrom the same way because their overall numbers showed how well they pitched. But in my era, it was strictly wins. Uh, I don't care, you know, if like I was 13 and 14, the general managers say, well, you know, we pay our pitchers for how many games they win. So you're really dependent on the on the team behind you. And that was an important stat. Unfortunately, uh, it's not anymore. Uh, you know, wins and innings uh, were, were very important. And that's why we wanted to stay in the game as long as we could. So you wrap up your Twins career. Eventually, you make your way to the, the White Sox. Again, a team that you had a chance to, to sign with uh, out of college initially. What, what led to that move? And, and, you know, again, for you, like you said, maybe a little bit closer to home and that, that opportunity to get back closer to family as well. Well, in, uh, in 72, I was on my way to maybe having my best year. That was the last year for the designated hitter. And I slid into second base, break up a double play, and I jammed my wrist. It ended up being a broken wrist. I was done for the rest of the year. So when I came back in 73, I had developed a screwball in in 72, a pitch that went down and away from a right-hand hitter. And I kind of lost the feel of that after the broken wrist. So I really wasn't pitching that well. And I had uh, a a little bit of an arm injury in 67 that slowed me down. So my arm was really starting to come back. And I knew the twins put me on waivers. Uh, where any club, you know, starting with the worst club in the league, any club can pick you up for like 25 grand. Uh, And I remember telling our bullpen coach, Bob Rogers, I said, I know uh, they got me on waivers. They're going to get rid of me. They got, you know, Burt Blylevin had become an established starter. Then we had a couple of other young starters. But I said, I'm not done yet. I I said, I feel like my arm is really coming back. So uh, I was out playing golf at Minnetonka Country Club, which I did most every day. I didn't start. And uh, and the, they called me to the phone, didn't have cell phones in. And they, they said, a man named Roland Heeman's on the phone. And I knew who Roland was. He's general manager of the White Sox. So I go in the golf shop and he said, uh, we just claimed you off waivers. And I said, wow, that surprises me. I heard that the Royals and the Yankees were interested in the left-hand pitcher. And he said, well, we're looking ahead to next year. Uh, my record at the time was 11 and 12. My ERA, I don't know, might have been in the fours. Uh, and uh, he said, we're prepared. He said, I see by your contract, you're making $60,000. And he said, we're prepared to give you a contract next year for 70000 Wow. You know, I'd have to win 20 games with Minnesota to get that. So, And I was the first uh, 5 and 10 player. That means you had 10 years in the major leagues. And the last five were the same team. So that gave me the right to turn it down if I wanted to. But obviously, when you have one team is trying to get rid of you, the other team that wants you, you're going to go to the team that wants you. And, uh, yeah, getting back with Johnny Sane and then uh, uh, playing for Chuck Tanner, that that really helped me resurrect my career. Yeah, and you get a raise out of it, too. And, uh, and certainly it did resurrect your career. Two 20-win seasons, you were, what, fourth in the Cy Young and – in 1975 as well was was it just a change of scenery or were there more tweaks to your delivery during that time oh there was a very major change uh in early 74 uh, my record went to four and six i i was four and one at one time but i didn't deserve to be i wasn't pitching that well uh and then i lost five in a row and the harry carry on the broadcast was calling for for him to get rid of me. And uh, so it was a tough time. And uh, we got off a road trip in Chicago and uh, my manager, Chuck Tanner said, would you come in a little early tomorrow? And uh, so I figured, I know what that's going to be all about. It's going to, uh, uh, you know, he's going to give me my release and say, Hey, you had a nice career, but it's time to move on. But in, in my record was four and six then, but instead of that, he slapped me on the shoulder and said, look, You've been winning 15 games a year in this league for 15 years, and I think you can still do it. He said, you're going to start a week from Monday against Cleveland. you got 10 days to go down to the bullpen with Johnny saying, figure something out. So I went down with Johnny, and we began to work on a little faster motion, a little faster release. 
and I got my start on that Monday, and uh, I ended up the year 21 and 13. So, and, and the next year was a 20 game. So, uh, with Johnny Sainz coaching, and I don't know any other manager that would have stuck with me at that time than Chuck Tanner. So that major change there really enabled me to pitch for almost another 10 years. Yeah, baseball is such a tough sport. I'm sure confidence has to be a big part of that. Knowing that they have the confidence in you, did that help you and make you pitch better because of that? Well, I think just the fact that I was relieved uh, because I thought my career might be over. And then to get that start and, and, and how it worked out so well as the first start back, uh, I pitched a complete game and pitched very well. So that kind of gave me the confidence that, hey, I'm getting a second chance here and I got this new delivery that's working. So that, that gave me a fresh start. 1973 to 75 with the White Sox. You move on to the Phillies, 1976 to 79. And at that time, you transitioned from being a starter to coming out of the bullpen. What was that like? And, and you know, mentally, what was that like for you to make that adjustment? Well, in, in 76, I still uh, started when the White Sox, uh, Chuck Tanner came to me and Roland Heeman, and they said, uh, you know, the team isn't doing very well. Oakland had kind of become the power in the American League West. And uh, Mr. Allen, our owner, is losing money. And, uh, you know, you've had two great years. You're certainly worthy of a, a generous raise. But we think we can get some young talent for you. So uh, Pittsburgh, the Mets, and the Phillies uh, were all looking for a veteran left-hand pitcher or a veteran pitcher. So they said, if we could work it out, where would you like to go? And I had seen the Phillies in spring training, and I could see how they were getting better and better. And my dad, being a, a Philadelphia Athletics fan, I always thought Philadelphia would be a fun place to play. So I said, boy, if you can work it out to get me to the Phillies. So sure enough, they did. And uh, those are the best teams physically I was ever on. We, we won the division every year, won 100, over 100 games two years. I did not do well individually. Chuck had told the Phillies, pitch him every four days, even every three days. The more you pitch him, better his control is going to be. I'd come off a year where I pitched 300 innings. But uh, Phillies manager, Danny, he didn't see it that way. He wanted to match up his starters. So, like, he didn't want me to pitch against Montreal because he had a lot of right-hand hitters. I said, well, I, you know, I had to get some right-hand hitters out in the last 15 years. So I didn't do as well uh, starting-wise. And then eventually when uh, – when the Yankees claimed me in 79, that's when I really became uh, more of a relief pitcher than a starter. Was it a tough adjustment or was it something that was easy to accept to see your career continue? Well, it was easy to accept, but it, the adjustment is as a starter, uh, you know, you're looking at a nine inning game. So early in the game, it's it's kind of like you're, you're getting a feel for the mound and you're not pitching it like it's the ninth inning. And all of a sudden, when you become a relief pitcher and you come in in the seventh inning with a couple men on, the tendency is to, you know, try to throw harder, try to do something more than you normally do. And you find out that doesn't work. You have to learn to just pitch the way you've been pitching. So I, I adjusted that. And then uh, to that, uh, I wasn't with the Yankees very long. I was kind of a, a stopgap until they had a talented left-hand pitcher named Rudy May. Uh, and when Rudy got healthy, why they sent me packing and then the Cardinals picked me up and that's uh, that was a nice break for me. Yeah. Your high water mark as a team winning a championship world series in 1982, fourth decade in the game, you win a world series championship. What's going through your mind at that point to, to see it come to this and, and, you know, to excel at that level for as long as you did. Well, you know, I was just a bit player with those, uh, Cardinal teams. I had started some games in the early 80s, and Whitey Herzog was our manager. Whitey and I were actually teammates for a brief period of time uh, in the late 50s. And uh, and I had, I think, started 10 games one year. I had six complete games. I was 42. I My arm felt great. I said, well, I, I want to keep starting, I'm sure. And Whitey came to me and he said, uh, I want you to be my lefty, lefty specialist next year. He said, I'm going to build my pitching staff from the ninth inning back. I'm going to get, we got Bruce Suter in a trade. And then we had like Jeff Lottie, Doug Bear, uh, Mark Littell, myself. We were sort of a, a quartet down the bullpen. I was the only uh, left-hander. And we ended up winning the World Series. So that was obviously a, 
uh, you know, a, a positive change for me. But what that 1982 year meant to me uh, was, you know, first of all, it was the most exciting team I ever played on. Uh, we only hit 67 home runs as a team. We stole 200 bases. We had pitching and defense. We had Ozzie Smith, the gold standard at shortstop. We had Willie McGee in center. Uh, we were just fans today don't realize how much fun it was to watch that team who won games with singles and stolen bases. And then when we finally, I remember I was sitting in the uh, sitting on the bullpen bench in game seven, and we needed one more out, two more outs, I think, leading six to three and. Uh, the police were there with the horses coming out to ring the field, keep the fans from getting on the field. And uh, one of the uh, guys out of the dugout, one of the guards came to me and said, would all you guys in the bullpen like to go sit in the dugout to avoid the rush? And I said, no, I'm not moving. I said, I I'm not going till we get that last out. <laughs> so I sat there and, uh, and Bruce, who's a good friend and, and former team, when he got strike three on that last hitter, uh, you know, I was able to wear a, a World Series ring. And what made it extra special was I found out later, uh, no professional player in any professional sport played longer before getting a championship ring than 24 years. So, and that was my last full year. So that's why that team, you know, I had most of my years with the Twins, and I'm grateful to the Twins, but uh, that 82 year with the Cardinals. We're having a reunion this year because it's a 40th anniversary of winning that World Series. So I, I actually was at an event with Ozzy not too long ago. So uh, promises to be a fun summer. Yeah. How many pro athletes have outstanding careers that they feel are unfulfilled because they don't win that championship? And it's interesting. Baseball players so superstitious. So you didn't want to leave your spot. You were winning. You didn't want to ruin that that mojo right there to 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 go into the dugout to be with the rest of the team. Yeah, I've seen too many games, you know, it's never over till you get that last out. And I, as we were approaching the end of that game, and then I began to get the flashbacks of being in the minor leagues, you know, and being with a lot of teams. And we got to the World Series in 65, we lost in seven. And actually, that's another record, not a record of accomplishment, but just a, a record of trivia that 17 years between World Series appearances is also the longest period of time any players ever had. And so that was my 17th year. So in 65, when we got there, we had a good team. We thought, well, you know, we're going to get back there, but we never did. Uh, so I sat in that bullpen. I said, no, I'm very content. And, you know, I dodged all the people coming on the, <laughs> on the field and, uh, and got out there. But uh, that, that was an exciting moment. 25-year career, 283 wins, three-time All-Star, but 16 consecutive gold gloves. Is that the number or, or is that maybe the stat that you're most proud of? Is there one out there as you look back now and start to reflect and, and wrote the book about your career? Well, I, I'm proud of that because uh, I mentioned Bobby Chance earlier in the uh, in our podcast. And uh, Bobby was my boyhood hero. I mentioned 5-6. And it was a radio game then. We didn't have television. And uh, so on Sunday afternoon, I could listen to eight games. I could listen to four doubleheaders, Cubs, White Sox, Tigers in Detroit, and then when the Braves moved to Milwaukee. So when Bobby was pitching for Philadelphia against the White Sox, uh, I would hear the announcer saying, here's Bobby Shantz, best fielding pitcher in baseball. He lands on the balls of his feet. He's ready to go left or right. He's always in position to catch a ball, hit back at him. So I would go in my backyard and I would mimic being Bobby Shantz. Fast forward to my first spring training in 1958, go through the pitcher's fielding drills, and the coach said to me, kid, you look just like Bobby Chance. And I said, well, you know, I told him he, that's my boyhood hero. Well, Rawlings uh, Sporting Goods, a few years ago, they sponsored the gold glove. They give the gold gloves away, and they sponsor the dinner. So Mike Thompson from Rawlings called me, and he said, we're thinking about giving a legacy award to some of the players that won gold gloves the early years. They started giving them out in 1957. So he said, uh, have you heard of Bobby Chance? I said, have I heard of him? He's my boyhood hero. He said, well, we're tracking him down and we're hoping to get him to the Rawlings, to the gold glove dinner, and you can give him uh, a legacy award. So there, I met Bobby briefly in 1960. 
and I had not seen him. I, I, I knew he was still alive, living in the Philadelphia area. And so there at age 80, three years ago, uh, I got to give a legacy award to Bobby, who was 93. I said, how often does a, a guy 80 get to give an award to his boyhood hero who's 93? Well, this year, I'm 83. Bobby's 96. He was hoping to come to my induction. But I got a text the other day. It's understandably, he's not moving around quite as well. So he's going to watch it on television. But yeah, it's because of... Uh, uh, he was my inspiration to learn how to field my position, and, and that's why I ended up with those gold gloves. Yeah, that's a great story. How a now Hall of Famer in yourself, you know, aspire to be somebody and, and look to that. And, and again, it, probably all sports, but baseball is one of those that you have that connection, I think. And, you know, the, the gold glove, again, 16 straight gold gloves. I read that you had the same glove for 15 consecutive years. Is that right? Yeah, it's out here in the garage. We're getting ready to move to uh, – up to Vermont, but the Hall of Fame is putting together a, a, a little display of some of the artifacts of my career. And they're going to, yeah, if I threw it on the street right now, a kid probably throw it in the trash can. You know, it's got <laughs> black friction tape on the wrist and it's all re-strung. And I, I can hold it up like that and look right through it. But it's kind of like an old pair of jeans or an old sweater. It's, it's comfortable and I just, I wanted to use it. Well, that's, uh, yeah, don't throw that away. Uh, don't throw no. the street. That's uh, definitely got to go to the Hall of Fame. That's amazing that you're able to keep it for, for that long. My son's 11, plays baseball. He wants a new glove every year. Uh, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm using you as an example to say, hey, you don't need yeah. one every year. Again, a 25-year career, four decades, seven presidents that you were playing baseball through. Does the length of your career, does that amaze you as well and, and others as you talk about that? Because – to have that kind of consistency on the professional level, 25 years is a long time to be doing your craft. Yeah, I, I think I was just fortunate. You know, it's a combination of genetics. And I think uh, early in my career, unlike, like, say, your son right now, he, he if, he's, if he's good, they probably wanted to play travel ball. And then the coaches, well, you can only play baseball. It gets so specialized. And either kids burn out or in a lot of cases they're they're putting too much stress on their body before it really develops so i didn't do that so by the time i mean i pitched 240 innings when i was 19 in class c ball because that's the way we were trained so uh you know i had a durable body and uh, as a left-hander being able to throw strikes and i think the other thing is that i i started early in my career going to spring training feeling like I had to make the team. I didn't want to go there feeling like, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, hey, I've had a good career. And, and when you start thinking like that, your career probably will end. And so I just, every year I was motivated to, I want to get better, I want to keep playing. And uh, Steve Carlton, who became my teammate in Philadelphia, uh, we had this little goal that we were each going to pitch till we were 50. Uh, I made it to 44. I went to camp at 45, and I think Lefty pitched till he was 43. Jamie Moyer pitched till he was 50. So uh, that was kind of a, a goal. And I, and I always kept myself in good condition in the offseason. You know, in the early years, uh, we had to have a job in the offseason uh, to make ends meet. You know, I was, I was announcing high school basketball games and things like that. But I always had time to play racquetball or handball, so I always kept active. So when a lot of players who didn't get a chance to exercise during the season, they were going to spring training and get in shape. When I got there, I was already in pretty good shape. And I think that helped me avoid any, any kind of uh, injuries that might happen in spring training. So again, four decades in the game, the game certainly changed during your time as a professional pitcher in major league baseball. And the, the opponents changed as well. Who, who challenged you the most? Who was who it that, boy, it was a tough out for you, and every time you got it, you, you figure, whew, that's an out. We're moving on to the next guy. Yeah, well, that's uh, – Al Kaline was, was my toughest hitter. Uh, there were others. Brooks Robinson hit for average, Reggie Smith. Uh, but Al did the most damage. He I gave up 10 home runs. We became great friends. He passed away last year, actually, but he uh, – he announced Tiger games when I was announcing, and uh, we'd see each other at the Gold Glove Awards Banquet. So uh, Al and I became great friends, but, uh, man, he was tough on me. Yeah, a number of uh, Hall of Famers we've lost here the last couple of years. 
from your playing days, brief stint coaching wise, you coached with the, the, the Reds with Pete Rose, who was one of your teammates with the Phillies as well. Did you enjoy that or did you quickly realize that that kind of wasn't for me at that time? I really enjoyed it. You know, when Pete and I competed against each other, uh, he had a habit. If he made an out, he wanted to run across the mound and make the pitcher move, kind of, you know, intimidate him. And I'd see him coming out of the corner of my eye, so I would move in his way and make him move, run around. And then he kind of looked back and grinned at me. And one day he sent their batting practice pitcher over to tell me if he got a managing job, he'd like me to be his pitching coach. So when he got the Reds job in 84, uh, I got the call and I went in there to coach and I did all of 85. I, I enjoyed it a lot, but, uh, you know, financially it was quite a fall off from being a player and you put in long hours. And then I began to get uh, calls from uh, different agents and so forth that thought that uh, I would have a career in broadcasting. So that's what I told Pete and he understood that. And in, uh, in 86, I got my first real job with a team doing Yankee games. Yeah, coaching-wise, uh, Tom Browning in 1985, a 20-game winner under your tutelage. So uh, certainly that's a good mark for you there. You mentioned you were doing uh, and calling some some basketball games in the offseason and stuff like that. When did you realize, okay, broadcasting was going to be, you know, maybe my third act here and the way to stay involved with the game that you love? You know, I, I never really looked at it as a goal. Uh, you know, you, you don't look that far ahead and you think you're going to play forever. So I really didn't have any set. I thought maybe I would coach for a while. I didn't know for sure. Uh, but then when I when I got the call from these people, see, in those days, in, in my era, when you had a rain delay, you didn't have alternative programming. You didn't have cable TV or anything like that. So they would call one of the players up to the booth just to tell stories. And that's when one of the producers uh, – I was up with Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn in the Philly booth, and they said, you ought to look at this – as a career when you're done playing. Well, we had a player strike in 81 and uh, the uh, the executive producer of home team sports in uh, uh, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area called me and said, we're doing triple A games, even though the big leagues are in strike. Would you like to go in and work some games with Ralph Kiner? First game I worked was Rochester, Syracuse. That's when Cal Ripken was a shortstop for Rochester. <laughs> so that's kind of where it started. Then I did some college games for ESPN and all of a sudden this started working out and I uh, got more attention and more opportunities and here I am uh, 2022 I've actually I think it's my 36th year that I've been uh, a baseball analyst uh, much more than I was as a player. Yeah seven, seven Emmy Awards that you've won you've worked at almost uh, every network uh, called so many games is there one that sticks out? I know you, you called a no-hitter for Dwight Gooden at, at one point at CBS in the 1990s. Is that kind of the, the game that sticks out in your mind from a broadcast standpoint? Well, David Wells' perfect game would be one, but I would say the most exciting night and the easiest game to do was Bob Costas and I did the last home game of Derek Jeter. And we had a camera following him around all day and I said, this is going to be the easiest game to announce because all you have to do is sit back and don't say too much. And, you know, we watched all the emotions that Derek was going through. And then, of course, when it looked like uh, the Yankees had the game won, then Baltimore came back and tied it up. And he comes up in the 10th inning, 10th or 11th, and knocked in the winning run. But I remember looking at Bob Costas in between innings several times and saying, you believe this, people probably paid thousands of dollars to get a ticket to this game, and we're getting paid to watch it. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that one really uh, stands out. Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that because one of our previous guests was Antoine Richardson, now the first base coach for the Giants, who scored that winning run, I believe, on that, that hit from Jeter. So, uh, you know, as you said, a front row seat that you had, Bob Costas, you guys worked so well together with Major League Baseball Network. Is he – and I know you guys go back to your, your Cardinals days as well. Is he kind of the, the best guy that you worked with? I don't want you to alienate the other guys, but yeah. you know, Bob Costas, obviously such a, a, a professional and such a, a baseball fan as well. Yeah, we, we go back to when I did an interview with him at KMOX when he was a young broadcaster in the early 80s. 
and then we became friends. So yeah, we we clicked because he, you know, in the days of analytics and metrics and everything's a science project, we just, you know, we talk baseball. And I think people enjoy that. But I got such good training early on. Uh, I still consider my my broadcast mentor Bill White. I don't know if you remember Bill White. He was National League president. He uh, played for the Cardinals for a long time. And I did the Yankee games with him in 86. He taught me a lot about the business. And then I worked games with the great Dick Enberg. Uh, and I learned from him, Dick Stockton. And then I uh, had a conversation with John Madden. And he gave me little tips along the way. So I got a lot of, a lot of help along the way. And, uh, you know, my most enjoyable years probably is uh, – Kenny Singleton and I, you remember Kenny Singleton uh, was with the Orioles. We didn't know each other personally that well, but uh, uh, in, in Madison Square Garden Network had me do an audition with several, and Kenny was one of them, and they said, who do you think you'd do well? I said, I, I love working with Kenny. So we're still good friends to this day. He retired recently, but we had uh, six great years following that uh, Yankee team. But now with Bob, uh, you know, just doing a few games a year, uh, they're really special. Like I said, we've become, I was at his Hall of Fame induction a few years ago, and and he's coming to mind this year. So we've really become good friends as well. Yeah, you're 83 years old. You could easily be sitting back, relaxing, watching games from your couch, from your house. What keeps you going broadcast-wise? Why why continue to broadcast? What, you know, excites you from from that standpoint? Well, you know, the game today is not the same. I, I really don't like the way the game operates. You know, when you have these one to nothing games that take three and a half hours, that's not enjoyable. But uh, I think being around, you know, a lot of the managers like Terry Francona is a guy I played, you know, against and Alex Cora, Aaron Boone, I've known since he was seven year old kid. So I have relationships like that, and I enjoy uh, the talent of the players. I mean, the talent of the players today, and it's probably true in all sports, is just off the charts in terms of their physical ability. I just wish they could play the game the way we did, you know, not because they're not skillful, but, you know, when when the ball was a little softer, I wish they'd soften the ball when it wasn't just home run derby. Like our Cardinal team, you were stealing bases, you were hit and run, and that's that's the fun of being a part of the way the game was uh, was invented centuries ago. So I don't like that part of it, but I uh, I love to see uh, the players perform. I've got a series coming up in Detroit where I'm doing Twins games, and I'll enjoy uh, visiting with the Miggy with Miguel Cabrera, who just got his three thousandth hit. So there's always a reason when I go to the ballpark that I I think I'm going to have a nice day. Are there any players now, pitcher or, or fielders, hitters, that you think are kind of throwback players that could have played back in your era as well? Yeah, it, it's hard to compare. I would say like a Bryce Harper would be that kind of player, but it, it's hard to compare because I think players of – if we were raised the way kids today are raised, we might be bigger, stronger, lifting weights or whatever, and – if we had the ability, we could probably adapt to the way the game is played today. And the same way if Mike Trout, uh, I mean, Ken Griffey Jr., I think was probably the best all-around natural player in, in recent years that I've seen. I mean, Willie Mays stood out 50 years ago, but now we have quite a few players who can play the game similar to Willie Mays. They're probably not going to have a long, successful career, but uh, – yeah, I, I think seeing uh, seeing those guys, and I, I think that players with the ability could adjust to any era. Well, again, 25 years, 2001, you were inducted into the Minnesota Twins Hall of Fame. Spent you know a lot of time in baseball, but the majority of it with the Twins. What did that mean to you to be inducted to you know the franchise's Hall of Fame as one of their best players ever? Well, I think anytime you get an award like that, and you you look back at how many guys really get the chance to play major league ball, you know, how small the percentage is, and then you get to play it for a long time and then have the twins acknowledge you like that. They're retiring my number this year, a week before the hall of fame induction. And that's another, you know, humbling honor that uh, I just, I don't really look at any of that. Like uh, I deserve it, or uh, I feel like I've worked, you know, they always say I worked hard at it. I never thought baseball was work. I remember when, I think I had 50 years in the game, and I told my oldest sister, who's since passed away, I said, I'm, 
I'm thinking about retiring this year. And she said, where are you going to retire from? You never worked a day in your life. All you do <laughs> is play games. <laughs> so I've, I've enjoyed that. But anytime you get one of those, uh, one of those awards, it, it humbles you more and it makes you more appreciative of, you know, when you look at the injuries and, and all the things that have to go right for you, not only on the field, but in life. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, eight decades of not working. It's led you to the Hall of Fame. You got the call in December, uh, this past December. What was that like when you heard your name and, and, and finally the recognition to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, you know, I've been on the ballot for the Veterans Committee several times, and I missed by one vote a couple times, too, so I knew the drill. Uh, they call you early in the week, and, okay, you're on the ballot. I've always been on the ballot. They vote for four out of the ten. Uh, if you could be near your phone, uh, 515-545. If we have good news, we'll call you then. And then ESPN announces things uh, at 6 o'clock. And, of course, we don't call you with bad news. So if that time lapses and you haven't received a call, then you're not in. And I know that feeling. So I, I wasn't, you know, I would, you're always kind of antsy because in the back of your mind, you're thinking it could happen. And I had guys on the committee this year. Uh, like Ozzie, uh, Ozzie Smith and Mike Schmidt and uh, Rod Carew and guys that I played with and against like Joe Torrey and Fergie Jenkins and writers that were covering the game during my era, executives like John Sherholt. So I thought, I'm going to get the best hearing this year that I've ever had. And then about half of the time for the phone call had elapsed. And I thought, well, you know, probably just another year. And then all of a sudden, uh, you get the call, and when you hear the words on the other end say, this is Jane Clark from the National Baseball Hall of Fame, you know immediately uh, what it is. And like Tony LaRusso told me, and then your life changes in a heartbeat for the better. And that's certainly the case. I'm coming up on almost uh, five months. And uh, it's, it's just amazing to me the magnitude of the attention and the excitement and the places I'm going and the people I'm talking to and doing what I'm doing with you right now. So uh, it's been a great time five months have you been working on your speech do you, do you know the direction that's going to go in i've had my speech ready for quite a while but uh, the challenge is we have six guys going in this year and then seven with big poppy we have and so it's a hot day in cooperstown and the last words i got from sandy koufax when he called me to congratulate me he said now one more thing keep your speech short so they want us to keep it to 10 minutes well at 83 and all the people that have helped me, it's it's difficult yeah. to do that. But I do have it down, I think, to about 10 and a half. <laughs> Will your dad be part of that? A guy that kind of instilled the love of the game in, in you? Well, I'll be uh, certainly the majority of my uh, remarks will, will be about my dad and the influence he had uh, on my life and my career. And then, you know, a couple minor league managers and uh, teammates. So. Uh, I, they're all important to me, but I have to narrow it down to the to the ones I think really deserve the most attention. Yeah, eight decades. That's a lot of names if you name everybody. Right. But, right. but you're going in with a teammate as well. Tony Oliva going in with you. Again, you guys were in the the Golden Days era committee. You mentioned some of the, the guys that were on that committee. That's got to be rewarding as well to go in with somebody, uh, again, that you were a, a teammate for for all those years. Yeah, it's special because I saw Tony. I'd had three or four years in the big leagues when he came up. And, you know, they've been a, a little a video about his career. It's just amazing how he got out of Cuba and, uh, you know, got released in spring training. And then they finally recognized he was a pretty good hitter. And they sent him to Withville, Virginia back in, uh, I think it was 61 or 62. So I've seen him develop where he, he could hit, but he couldn't field. And three years later, he got a Gold Glove Award. So uh, it's very exciting. And, you know, Tony and I have been, been friends for over 60 years now. What went into the book? What You know, did somebody come to you to, to write the book? Obviously, a lot to, to tell about it. So, uh, you know, why now to write that book? Well, people had talked to me about it for years, about the more years I got in the game. This is my 63rd season being involved in Major League Baseball in some way, shape, or form. And I said, you know, I think I want to wait till I get near the end if I could project when that will be. And then Bob Costas had said to me, well, I want you to do a few games with me in 2020. 
uh, because then your career will touch eight decades. And I don't know if any or how many uh, baseball people have had that. So that's what motivated me to keep going. And I, I still keep going. But that's what I thought. Well, I'll just look back uh, at these different decades. And uh, with Doug Lyons, we said, well, let's just uh, slice it up in each decade, highlights and stories. And that's kind of how the, uh, uh, the idea for the book came about. Again, good as gold playing on your 16 consecutive cold gloves. Uh, my eight decades in baseball, you see it there. And get more on the stories that we talked about here forward from Bob Costas, as you said, a good friend of yours, a broadcast partner as well. And when can we see you again on Major League Baseball Network? When are you and, uh, and Bob doing another game? Our first games are May 16 and May 19 in Boston. Those are the first network games. I'm only going to do about a half a dozen. And then uh, I still do some work for the Twins. So I'll be about a, do about a dozen on the Twins network. Well, this has been a, a lot of fun going down memory lane with you. And uh, can't congratulate you enough for the honor. I know it's going to be a special day. It might be a hot day, but it's going to be a special day in uh, July 24th in Cooperstown. And I uh, hope you have a great speech and, and a great time there. You certainly have uh, earned it and deserved uh, all the accolades here you're receiving. All right. Thanks, Mike. I enjoyed it. All right. Jim, take care. Okay. You too. Well, great stuff there from a soon-to-be Hall of Famer elected in December. He'll be going in inducted this summer, July 24th in Cooperstown, New York. Our thanks to Bill Ames with uh, Triumph Books for organizing that and also for Baseball Ruski, some of the highlights that you saw from that 1965 World Series against the Dodgers. Again, if you like what you're seeing, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube page as we'll have a lot more coming up. Hopefully some more Hall of Famers for you as well. But our thanks again to Jim Cott, Baseball Hall of Famer getting inducted into the Hall of Fame coming up this summer. Thanks for joining us this week's edition of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.